0: The gentlemen who lead us in worship always do such a splendid job. Every aspect is done in an orderly way, a decent way, an appropriate way, and it encourages all of us to express the heartfelt gratitude and desire to the very God who deserves it so. Certainly, it's fair to express thanks to all the men that lead us in the services, not only tonight, but all the times we come together. It takes conviction, it takes seriousness, and they do it so well. As you probably have already noticed, uh, Jonathan has mentioned it, and I did also this morning, as we give thought to the matter of authorization, or at least a subject touching, how does the Bible authorize? And tonight, let's give some consideration, if you would, to that very interesting theme and topic. In fact, as we give thought to some of these introductory comments, we'll just begin like this. On this particular slide, some pretty obvious statements, very direct ones at that. How do you and I, in the name of religion, know what it is that God wants us to do? How do we know what would constitute an acceptable worship service? How do we know in what way our particular activities as Christians would then be satisfactory to God? Because after all, pick any particular subject you might want to consider. I'll start with infant baptism. There are individuals who will open the Bible and say, well, there, doesn't it say, and give approval to us baptizing this little baby. But you and I are absolutely convinced, using the same Bible, that that's not appropriate. How does the Bible authorize? Perhaps there's another example. What if you give thought to what so many, in fact, would very strongly believe, that once an individual is saved and that person's name is added to the great honor roll that you and I recognize as the book of life, never can that name, at least many think, be removed. And they might even turn to some verses and say, well, there, doesn't that illustrate it? But you and I on so many occasions have affirmed that that's not what the Bible teaches. How does the Bible authorize? Who might be in the position of concluding he or she is correct? You could go right down the list. You and I are absolutely convinced, based on the matter of biblical authority, that it is not right to have mechanical instruments of music and worship. And yet there are others not very far from here who would think the exact opposite. In fact, they might even turn to various verses and say, There it is. Doesn't that authorize it? One more time, how does the Bible authorize I would go so far as to say this maybe is the most fundamental topic or matter of consideration that you and I could possibly give, for it literally dictates and determines what we do and how we do it. Let's study that matter tonight. As you come to the bottom of that slide, we'll find even before the night's finished that it really touches the most expansive of topics, even how one deals with biblical silence. With all that in mind, let's proceed as follows. How does the Bible authorize? First of all, the matter touching the subject of authority is so intensely significant. This particular slide has that as its goal. May I say that one of the things you and I must instill within the next generation is a heartfelt appreciation for the matter of authority as it relates to the Bible. It is not enough to say, I think. It's not enough to say, I suppose. It's not enough to say, well, I feel like it ought to be all right. We must have proper biblical authority or else it isn't authorized at all. With that in mind, didn't Jesus say after he was crucified, after he was resurrection, in Matthew 28, verse 18, all power, and that word power in the Greek means authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. The Lord had all of it, and therefore when He gave those instructions to the apostles and when it was bequeathed through the Spirit to those inspired New Testament writers, all authority with the approval of heaven has been set forth. It is with that in mind we come to the implication of Matthew chapter 4. When you and I give thought to what occurred on that occasion, the tempter had come before the master. Turn these stones into bread, and the Lord didn't do it. You may remember the second one take him into a pinnacle of a temple cast yourself off for the scriptures teach that he'll not let you dash your foot against a stone isn't it still true the devil quoted scripture he quoted directly from psalm 91 but jesus was wise enough appreciative enough and understood the nature of biblical authority where he knew that's not what that scripture taught In in fact, he quoted another text from the book of Deuteronomy and asserted the devil was incorrect in his assertion. Today, wouldn't you and I be particularly mindful of understanding the sacred text well enough to be able to help others see when they've made misinterpretations? The third time, though, the devil, of course, said, Look at all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. If you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you every one of them. That still teaches us, doesn't it, that? That old tempter, the one who's the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. He has tremendous influence, and he was willing to trade all of it if Jesus would just worship him. You and I still today know Jesus does have all authority, every bit of it. No wonder in light of that, Colossians 3.17 is our lesson text. We noticed it earlier. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. In light of the fact He has all authority, you and I, both word and deed, is to be done in His name. That is the way, of course, of asserting that it's done by His authority, with His approval. I would suppose that in Jude verse 3, we have a powerful addition, or at least a thought that is added to that in such a noteworthy way. When Jude began that little epistle, he began it by reminding those that he at first intended to write to them, addressing a different theme, a different topic, a different subject. But yet he said, after a reflection, I needed to write to you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all time delivered to the saints. It's still so significant that the Greek word that's there rendered is once for all time. The inspired presentation was closed. That once for all time faith, of course, is the very thing to which you and I wish to turn for our authority. As you and I build upon that, notice what comes next. It seems to me the Bible divides it very conveniently for us. Would you revisit with me for a moment Mark chapter 11? It was on that occasion that, of course, Jesus had just done something that greatly agitated some. He turned over some tables. He, in fact, drove out some money changers. Those that were involved in that work didn't appreciate that even a little bit. And so it was that shortly thereafter, they came to Jesus and asked Him this question, Who gave you authority to do this? That was a fair question. Jesus, who has given you the authority to enter the temple like this, disrupt the ongoings the way you've done it, where did you get this authority? You and I remember forevermore what Jesus said next. He then began to say, The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? You'll notice that this matter, namely the baptism of John, there's only one of two possible sources of authority for it. Either it's from men or it's from heaven. And there is no middle ground. Jesus asked them, you tell me about that and then I'll answer your question. And we all remember what they did. They discussed among themselves and they quickly came to appreciate the fact no matter how they answered, they would perhaps begin to reflect either poorly on themselves or the people would reflect on them poorly. They ended by saying, we can't tell. Jesus said, neither I tell you by what authority I do these things. But isn't it still fascinating that Jesus said in regard to this matter, namely the baptism of John, either it was a matter authorized from heaven, or it found its authority among the teachings of men. Today, you and I would never be satisfied if our teaching is only authorized by men. Because after all, that does not satisfy in the halls of heaven. We want to make sure that what we do, say, practice, and believe is authorized from heaven no wonder, then, we come to what's next. Heavenly authorities express thoroughly and completely in the sacred Word of God, isn't it? Now, we notice quickly as we began the lesson tonight, there still are those that would look upon this and reach entirely different conclusions, be it in regard to mechanical instruments, be it in regard to the baptism of infants, be it in regard to nearly any other biblical topic. So our question still has to be, how do we obtain correct biblical authorization. We're going to study that the remainder of the lesson tonight. May I suggest, as we close that slide before us, the seriousness that properly relates to this topic. So serious. A number of examples might be given, and time won't allow us to go back and revisit all of them in detail because the ideas are clear enough. We want to get to those remaining matters. But what about Nadab and Abihu? They were engaged in religious service in Leviticus 10, verses 1 and following. They were even involved in offering particular fire by way of sacrifice to God. But it was not satisfactory. God specifically took their lives on that occasion. What they were doing did not have proper authorization from God. You'll notice they offered strange fire which God had not commanded. Wouldn't it be terrible to engage in a worship doing something which he hadn't commanded, therefore being unacceptable to him? One more time, how does the Bible authorize? Another example, the scene in the life of David in which that Ark of the Covenant was being brought from its distant place to Jerusalem. Uzzah reached out and touched it. Uzzah, did you have authority to touch the Ark? He didn't. Did they have authority to carry it the way they were carrying it? No. Did they have authority for the individuals to, to in fact, be involved in the work? No. They didn't have authority for any of it, and Uzzah lost his life. And David had a great setback in his reign as king. Maybe you and I can see in that it's serious business to not have God's authority. The next slide will begin then to ask in some detail, so how do we know whether the Bible authorizes something or not? It comes with this initial observation. What about a direct command? Are there situations and are there instances in the Bible when God directly commands that something either be done or not done? And the answer is yes. Yes. In fact, God has worked by way of that several times, of course, throughout the ages. We can even go back as far as the patriarchal period. Wasn't it true? God gave some direct commandments. Noah, build an ark. He told him exactly how long, how wide, how tall to make it. He told him exactly how many doors and windows it was to have. He told him exactly of what wood it was to be made. There was a direct commandment given to Noah. Construct an ark. And he did it. You and I can appreciate that was one Old Testament example in which a direct command from the God of heaven was given. But what might we say about that mosaic period of time? Did God give some direct commandments there too? You and I can think of many of them. In Exodus chapter 20, God expressly said, Thou shalt not steal. Verses 14 and 15 of Exodus chapter 20. He specifically said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's pretty express, isn't it? Here was particular commandments of things not to do. Were there some commandments? Were there some things God said they were to do? You might quickly think about the construction of a tabernacle. Did they have authority for that? They sure did. Beginning in Exodus 25, God invested several chapters detailing to them, this is how long it's to be, this is how wide it's to be, even the furniture that was to go inside it. They were given positive commandments and they followed those commandments and God expressed the glory on that tabernacle that they had made. By now, you can probably wonder, these commandments, that's a direct command. It basically associates to a thou shalt or a thou shalt not. As we come to the New Testament era, this Christian dispensation, are there still some commandments? Oh, yes, and thanks be to God for them. I've listed a few of them. We mentioned this morning about the attitude of worship, but notice the commandment attached to it. Worshiping God is not an optional matter if we're going to please Him. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. That's only in one of many others that you might... Consider with me. What about loving our enemies? Not optional, is it? Jesus expressly taught in Matthew 5, verses 44 and 45, Thou shalt love thine enemy as thyself. Again, you and I do not have any question about that. That's a commandment. In James 1, verse 27, another one. Visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and keep oneself unspotted from the world. One more time, is that optional? It is not. Those commands then help us see that there are some things that God has embedded within His Word and the power of those commandments. Rather fascinating and remarkable, isn't it? As you and I love our enemies, for example, we notice that God loves them to the extent that He showers His rain upon them. He provides them opportunities. You and I are also taught, we must also consider within ourselves the attitude characteristic of a love for them. Go beyond that even to the next one. In terms of worship, give as we've been prospered. That's a commandment. 1 Corinthians 16, beginning in verse 1. You and I then have that express statement from the God of heaven given to us and we aren't left to wonder what it means. We're left to appreciate the seriousness and the intent of it, aren't we? And the obedience to it. Isn't that amazing? The nature of God's statement to us about the character and the affirmation of this, which is a direct commandment. By the way, you could list many additional things. I chose one final one at the bottom because, again, that's a matter that is dividing individuals and their thinking sometimes around our land. God has already told us in 1 Timothy 2 verses 11 and following that in the public assemblies it is not the thing that pleases Him for a woman to be the preacher, to be the one to usurp authority over the man. And so that settles that matter for all who respect the Word of God. Might we notice then that when there are individuals who disagree, it's so important to appreciate the Bible does authorize sometimes by direct commandment. However, that's not the only way it can authorize, is it? Are there additional ways that God in His Word authorizes us to do things? The answer is yes. Consider this one, if you would, for just a moment. Are there times in the sacred scriptures when we do not find a direct commandment relative to a particular activity, but as we observe the New Testament churches? those of whom we have record of the Scriptures, and we find that they, by approval from God or an inspired writer, we would appreciate that activity is also an approved thing. We're going to look at a few examples of that to appreciate the integrity of that which is presented. But you'll notice, we first of all might be quick to lay a bit of emphasis on that word approved. Just because we find in the Bible an example of something, does not necessarily mean that that particular behavior is a good thing. Sometimes people made mistakes. Sometimes people made errors. It's important that it be an approved example. That is to say, one on which we have inspired record that they were commended for it, that they received the nature of God's blessing for it. Perhaps, first of all, look at these negative ones. We know Demas made a mistake. In 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse number 10, here was one who himself forsook Paul and the brethren and went back into the world. That was a bad choice on Demas's part. Diotropes also made a bad choice in 3 John 9. Wasn't it on that occasion? He loved to have the preeminence among men. What he did, he did for everyone to applaud him because he wanted to be the one in the position of authority that wasn't a good quality of of diatrophies. As we begin to ask about some additional examples, what about these? What about supporting a missionary preacher in a distant place? Do we have biblical authority for that? Taking money out of the treasury of the Pippin congregation and using it to support a preacher in a far distant location, a faithful gospel preacher, do we have biblical authority for that? I might say there's not a single commandment of the New Testament that that must be done. Not one. But are there any examples in which we find first century churches doing that and doing it with the approval of heaven? In Acts chapter 13, on that occasion, as the first missionary journey was getting underway, we have a remarkable description of the church in Antioch the church on that location they themselves had made serious inquiry and powerful consideration relative to the topic you may remember that the holy spirit gave commandment separate me paul and barnabas at that time he was still known as saul but separate me saul and barnabas for the work whereunto i've called them Here was the Holy Spirit acting in light of giving approval for what Paul and Barnabas were about to do, which you and I call the first missionary journey. Heaven gave its approval for that. And Antioch encouraged it by sponsoring it. Antioch was the headquartered congregation, if you please. Not only that, they were also the sponsoring congregation for the second missionary journey, where this time it was Paul and Silas who worked in a different area of the Roman Empire. The third missionary journey, one more time, was so highly encouraged in the Word of God. In those cases, aren't we getting a feeling that the God of heaven, by approval of what the church in Antioch was doing, is strongly in favor of you and I doing something similar. As another example, we could make mention of Philippians 4.15. In the closing chapter of that book, This interesting comment is made. Remember, as Paul went about his work, there were many churches who chose not to support him financially. But the church in Philippi was not one of them. In fact, Paul highly commended and highly complimented the church in Philippi because they did support him. And later in the chapter, he even made mention of the church in Thessalonica. Today, you and I have the strongest of approval from heaven by way of an approved example that it is perfectly within the authority of the Word of God to support a gospel preacher either here or other or elsewhere as he preaches the unsearchable riches of Christ. As you look at that slide, you can perhaps ask another question. When a person obeys the gospel, is baptized into Christ, and then subsequent to that, has errors and sins known publicly in his life, what does that person need to do in order to be right with God again? Does he need to be baptized again? Were it not for the Bible, we would have no idea. We do not have any command anywhere as to what ought to be done, but thanks be to God, we have an example. We have an example of what a man did in Acts chapter 8. You can revisit the scene with me. His name was Simon. When Philip came into the area of Samaria, Simon obeyed the gospel. He himself had been a sorcerer. He bewitched people by way of his magical arts. Here was a sorcerer, and he became a Christian. Now the question comes, subsequent to that fact, he wanted to buy the capability of laying on of his hands and bequeathing the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter directly told him he was in error. He was guilty of sin on that occasion. So here we have a perfect opportunity. A person who was an erring Christian, what did he have to do to be made right? He did not have to be rebaptized. That's not what Peter told him to do. Peter encouraged that what was necessary was prayer. And in fact, it was on that occasion that Simon said, Pray to God for me, and Peter was happy to do it. And so today, we too rest surely upon the same consideration. When a Christian errs, that person needs to repent of his sins just like Peter told Simon but prayer to God needs to be offered on the man's behalf or the person's behalf again isn't it great we have an example as you come nextly you might wonder think about our partaking of the Lord's Supper you and I look forward to that it's such a highlight such a rich and powerful consideration how often do we do it Some take it once a year. Some take it once every quarter. Some take it once a month. We don't have a command anywhere in the Bible that says, Thou shalt take the Lord's Supper every Sunday. But we have a great example. What does Acts chapter 20 set before us? Here was a church in Troas. As Paul on that third missionary journey came to the location, we have an interesting comment that they met on the first day of the week to take the Lord's Supper. Now, every week has a first day if it has any part in it. And therefore, these brethren met the first day of every week, and that's, in fact, encouraged by our additional observation of First Corinthians 16. For there they gave, again, on the first day of every week when they came together. And the Greek word carries that emphasis in it. You and I look forward then following that example to a wonderful assembly in which we partake of the Lord's Supper every first day of every week. As we think about the greatness of this example, isn't it wonderful that God approves things this way? So far tonight, we've looked at two possibilities. There are times that God authorizes with a direct commandment, and there are times He authorizes with a good example, an approved one. Are those the only two ways? The answer to that is no, as we're about to see next. What other means might we utilize to conclude that something is approved? I use the following name because that's often the thing that's used to, to describe what we're about to see next. It's often called a necessary inference. We might immediately wonder, what does that mean? Those are probably not words you and I use often in our our daily walk of life, at least putting them together that way, a necessary inference. I've tried to thus begin with at least a little statement, a definition if you please. By this I simply mean a logical conclusion that follows from a Bible command or an approved example, even though the Bible does not explicitly state it. Now perhaps to make that clearer, let me give you an example. Maybe that language at the very outset seems a little bit lofty, it seems a little bit abstract, but suppose I were to make two statements. Arnold is taller than Billy, and then this additional statement, Billy is taller than Claude. Now I've made two very clear explicit statements, and so by that you know something about the relative heights of Arnold versus Billy, and of Billy versus Claude. May I ask, is there any conclusion that might be reached about the relative height of Arnold versus Claude? Even though I never said anything about Arnold being taller than Claude, is it still a logical deduction that such must follow if the first two are correct? Well, yes. There's no way it could be otherwise if the first two statements are true. The same kind of idea applies to the Bible. If there are explicit statements, namely direct commandments, or if there are approved examples such that logical deductions could be made based on them, then those two also would have to be correct. For that reason, why don't we look at a few examples? Considerations that might encourage us to think about this matter of a necessary inference. Question. Isn't it true that it is the will of God that a congregation have elders? To that we'd surely agree for so many verses. Highlight it. Question. Can a congregation exist if it does not have elders? And if it does, how are they to conduct business? Let's put some things together. First of all, we know that a congregation can't exist without elders because it happened in Acts 14.22. On that occasion, here were congregations on the first missionary journey that had been established up to two years earlier, and only two years later did Paul come back through and appoint elders. So we know that they existed without elders. But we also know this. Is it vital for a congregation to take care of its business in the right way? For instance, a worship service needs to be decent and in order. The works of evangelism, benevolence, and edification need to be properly undergone. So did those works take place during that two-year period when they had no elders? If they were scripture congregations, they had to have been. So could they have had business meetings to plan, to analyze, and to, in fact, make ready for the carrying out of that work? Sure they could, even though the Bible doesn't say that that's what they did. It certainly would be within the confines of a necessary inference. Perhaps as another example, why don't we ask about the song book? Maybe that's on the back of the pew in front of you. The Bible doesn't say a word about song books nowhere. The word hymn book doesn't occur anywhere either in the Bible. So are we authorized to use a song book? Are we authorized to have a hymn book and to pay for that out of the treasury of the church? Absolutely. Because after all, consider these inferences. First of all, is the church commanded to sing? Absolutely. Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16 both set before us the fact that in the congregation and the assembly we must sing if we're to worship correctly. The Hebrew writer even says that in Hebrews 2 verse 12. So now if we know we must sing, then might we ask, how do we facilitate singing? For we know it's got to be orderly. We can't have somebody singing one thing and somebody singing something else at the same time. We can't have one group singing one song and somebody else trying to do something else. That's not acceptable worship. A songbook facilitates singing in unison with properly directed praise directed to God by virtue of those notes and the words that you and I sing in unison it's not to say that one would have to have a song book, but they at least are authorized. The same thing might be stated in relation to a man who leads us. The Bible doesn't say anything about a song leader. The words do not ever occur. But consider this, how haphazard would it be? And how confusing would it be? And how chaotic would it be if at that particular time in the service and we wanted to sing, we just all started singing something? That would not work. Isn't it great to have an individual, a man, who then can lead us, announcing the song so that we know which song to sing, starting it at at, an appropriate time so that we can sing together. That is exactly what Ephesians 5 referenced, didn't it? Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. As you think about a song book, might we also ask, It is this very matter that speaks so much in relation to biblical silence. I tried to use that phrase and reserve it really until now. The whole subject of biblical silence is what ultimately ushered in a large part of the denominations about 500 years ago. For John Calvin saw it very differently than you and I know the Bible teaches it. John Calvin believed that whatever the Bible does not expressly forbid is authorized. Let me say that again. John Calvin was under the impression that anything the Bible does not expressly condemn is perfectly fine. You might just imagine what all that that would allow. The Bible doesn't mention anything about turning cartwheels down the aisle in worship. I suppose for Calvin that would be just fine. The Bible doesn't say anything about having cookies and Oreos on the Lord's Supper table. So I suppose by Calvin's thinking, that'd be fine. You can imagine if we allow anything the Bible does not condemn, there are no limits to what could be done. Because just as surely as the Bible never says anything about it, it'd be fine. But that's not the way the Bible authorizes. As we've learned it tonight, the Bible only authorizes in one of three ways either with a direct command, with an approved example, or by necessary inference. And with regard to any practice, if it's not authorized in one of those ways, then we better not do it, because it does not have heaven's authorization. That, of course, answers fully these issues we raised at the outset of our lesson tonight. As we come to the close of that one, May I ask you to notice that this whole premise we've been mentioning about biblical silence and necessary inference, the Bible teaches that. There's a powerful argument in Hebrews that really is based on that very idea. I've tried to highlight it very briefly. You remember with me the scene in which the priesthood of Melchizedek was under discussion. On that occasion, several chapters were devoted to discussing that Jesus is forever a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The whole point out of all of that was to illustrate the greatness of the priesthood of Christ over against the Levitical priesthood. But as a part of that presentation, one interesting observation is made that touches our subject tonight. Question... Could Jesus be a priest on earth, either in the Old Testament or today, if one were bound by the Levitical priesthood? The Hebrew writer powerfully answers, no. And here's the reason, and the reason is so amazing. He says, our Lord sprang out of Judah, Hebrews 7, 14. Now when you and I give thought to who were permitted by God to be the priests of the Old Testament, God quickly, of course, made reference to the tribe of Levi, did he not? But question, did he ever say to the tribe of Judah, you are not allowed to be priests? Did he ever say to the tribe of Dan, you are not allowed to be priests? Did he ever say to the tribe of Simeon, you are not allowed to be priests? The answer is no, he never said that. But what he did say was, he said to the tribe of Levi, all the priests have to come from you that automatically eliminated everything else. And he didn't have to tell the tribe of Judah, you can't be the priests. He didn't have to tell the tribe of Dan, you can't be the priests. When he did authorize Levi, that excluded everybody else. And that's still the way God operates today. When he authorizes something, that excludes everything else. And so in light of our singing, like we raised earlier, the music of worship, he has authorized singing that eliminates everything else. No mechanical instruments, no humming, no yodeling, no whistling. Everything else is excluded except singing. That's what biblical authorization means, doesn't it? What about infant baptism? We raised that matter at the outset of our study tonight, didn't we? And we said, you and I would be happy to do that if there's biblical authorization for it, question Did God give any direct command anywhere for infants to be baptized? No, He didn't. Are there any approved examples anywhere in the New Testament that infants ought to be baptized? No. Are there any necessary inferences then to conclude that that's what ought to be done? No. That means then infants are not subjects of baptism. And isn't it true? Jesus taught along that line as well. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Can an infant believe? Can an infant express the matter of belief by virtue of a confession? Well, of course not. Infants are not proper subjects of baptism in that regard. Surely, in light of all those things, we might not address that other one that we raised at the outset of our study. Is it true that once a person is saved, he or she is always saved, regardless what the person may do or leave You and I again would say, if the Bible authorizes that, I know that's true, but if it doesn't, we mustn't rely on it. And sure enough, as you look at several passages, you know the Bible does not authorize that teaching at all. In fact, it teaches just the opposite. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. That description in 2 Peter 2, verses 18 to 22. Surely, as we conclude our lesson tonight, we've been reminded of how powerful this topic of how does the Bible authorize. And so why don't we conclude like this. The Bible authorizes by way of direct command, by way of approved example, by way of necessary inference. And no, that is an exhaustive list. That concludes the list. As you and I then scrutinize the activities, may I say, that our elders here at Pippin are keenly intent on ensuring that whatever we do, we have Bible authorization for it. Never wishing or desiring to, in fact, do what is sketchy or questionable, to do that which may well not be sure or certain. And you and I can be thankful because they are watching for souls and as you and I, of course, strive individually to always follow the same set of guidelines, making sure that God authorizes what you and I do in our lives in the name of religion. As we conclude the lesson, we know that plan of salvation falls so sweetly in these descriptions. How do I know what to do to be forgiven of sin? If we were left to ourselves, none of us would know. One person's ID would be just as good as anybody else's, but God has told us. You must believe in Jesus as the Son of God. You must repent of your sins. You must confess His name as the Son of God and then be baptized. And upon so doing, He's promised to wash your sins away if you have attended to that fact, but you have wandered away from the fold of faithfulness. Why not come back to your first love following the very example we noticed earlier tonight of Simon the sorcerer in in Acts chapter 8. If we could help you tonight in any way... We'd be delighted to do that, resting fully on the authority found in the Word of God. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. If we could help anybody tonight in your response to the gospel, why don't you come while together we stand and sing? I wanted to clarify something as I was retracing the lesson I just delivered. I made a misreference at one point in that. I wanted to fix that right now in Matthew 5. When I made the reference about loving the enemies, he does not in that place say love your enemies as yourself. That from the previous verse came from a different location. So, again, I apologize for that. That was a mistake on my part. He on that occasion simply talked to, of course, love your enemies. What they had heard was you love your enemies and hate, uh, rather you love your neighbors and hate your enemies. So my mistake for, for that reference.